Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Today, we have two quite different subjects. The first is a preview of what I expect in terms of financial market events through the rest of this year and into next year. The second is an important strategy for taking advantage of a cyclical upturn that will impact raw materials producers in a most positive way over the next several years. As we've discussed in recent podcasts, the world is moving rapidly to a Western trading block of countries that includes the U.S., U.K., the European Union, Japan, South Korea, and other countries allied with the West versus an Eastern trading bloc that's really defined as the Shanghai Cooperation Organization. I'll say a few words about this. The SCO, or Shanghai Cooperation Organization, is an intergovernmental organization founded in Shanghai 22 years ago. It currently comprises eight member states, China, India, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, Russia, Pakistan, Tajikistan, and Uzbekistan, plus four observer states, all interested in coming into full membership. And those states are Afghanistan, Belarus, Iran, and Mongolia, plus nine dialogue partners, and that is comprised of Armenia, Azerbaijan, Cambodia, Nepal, Sri Lanka, Egypt, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, and Turkey. In 2021, the decision was made to start the accession process of bringing Iran into the SCO as a full member. As we mentioned in previous podcasts, the SCO has its annual meeting toward the end of August next month in South Africa. Expectations are that this meeting will see the launch of a gold-backed brick currency to begin replacing the dollar for trade within this group of countries. It should be noted that this group is pretty large. It has a much higher population than the Western group. It has also far higher foreign exchange reserves than the Western group. The Eastern Bloc is growing at a higher rate over the past decade than the Western group. And there are a number of forecasts that project both China and India will have a larger gross national product than the United States in the next five or so years. So this group is not only expanding in membership and population, foreign exchange reserves, but also is expanding uh, so far anyway with higher growth than our Western group. I'll give you a little bit more perspective on the Western group. Think of this group as the NATO countries, plus Japan, Taiwan, South Korea, Scandinavia, Australia, many of the Southeast Asian countries, and most of Latin America. Africa, on the other hand, long-term, presents a series of question marks as China has aggressively invested in those countries that have the significant natural resource reserves in Africa. And the highlight example is the Democratic Republic of the Congo, which supplies over 70% of the world's cobalt. And by the way, The United States is still working on trying to have its first cobalt mine. So we have no cobalt mines. And cobalt has been and continues to be an important ingredient for the battery metals that we'll talk about in a few minutes. Another group which seems to be trending more to the eastern group so far, it's OPEC, 
Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries. And OPEC's members are Algeria, Angola, Equatorial Guinea, Gabon, Iran, Iraq, Kuwait, Libya, Nigeria, Republic of the Congo I just mentioned, Saudi Arabia, the United Arab Emirates, and Venezuela. I'm not going to spend more time parsing this group in terms of their alliances, but I think you probably get the picture. The reason for bringing up these points is to highlight what I consider to be history-making changes in country alignments, which will directly impact interest rates in the Western Bloc, the Western oil supplies, and ultimately investment and growth in the Western Bloc. Even though the Western Bloc is truly highly industrialized, presenting comfortable lifestyles, we really need to begin thinking about the Eastern Bloc with their much larger financing capabilities, their foreign exchange reserves, economic growth potential, and importantly, the fact that they are a key lender to the industrialized countries, importantly the United States, and they are aligned with a number of the key oil suppliers. Since this is an economic and financial podcast, not a political one, the formalization of these two trading blocks offers unique investment opportunities, particularly to us in the Western Bloc, which I'll comment on shortly. But I don't plan to go into more of the political observations or analyses, as that's a bit beyond the scope of our podcast. Let's go back to our economy for a few minutes. Here are some of the financial trends that will cause interest rates in the United States, anyway, to continue to increase the rest of this year and well into next year. First of all, the United States interest payments as a percentage of gross domestic product are heading pretty much straight up. And interest payments as a percentage of gross domestic product are getting near to post-World War II highs. And again, they're going pretty much straight up. And this is in contrast to the Federal Reserve that has in recent years been the primary buyer of U.S. government securities. They have been selling their portfolio little by little, and they have downsized their portfolio by a not inconsequential trillion dollars. They've gone from about nine trillion to a little bit more than eight trillion presently. That's going to be a problem because the Federal Reserve has announced that they are going to be reducing their portfolio of government securities. But with the trends that we're going to cover, it's kind of hard to see how they can continue doing that for very much longer. What am I talking about? Well, we can look at U.S. fiscal spending. This is government spending excluding interest payments, taking interest payments out as a percentage of GDP. During the SNL crisis, U.S. fiscal spending was 15% of GDP, went down to actually in the, in the early 1990s, a balanced budget, which we couldn't be further away from right now, to the 2000-2001 tech bust, where U.S. fiscal spending went back to about 15% of GDP. And during the great financial crisis, 2007, 8, 9, the U.S. fiscal spending went up to almost 25% of the gross domestic product. During COVID, it went way up far more than 25%, dropped. But now in 2023, we are getting close to 10% and the trend is straight up. So I suspect with another year, we will be back to the all-time highs, excluding COVID, of U.S. fiscal spending as a percentage of GDP. 
Why do I mention that? Because that's a consistent requirement that has to be financed in the United States debt markets. As the Federal Reserve tries to sell part of its assets, the U.S. government is increasing their need to finance, not only to finance the new obligations, but to actually refinance the older obligations. And actually, the refinance of the older obligations is something that I see very little of in the media. But in the next two years, we will be having to refinance almost 50%, 50% of our total national government debt, which is never, I don't think we've ever been in that position before. And we've actually started the process. The United States Treasury monthly issuances now in the past couple of months since Congress has made the debt agreement, U.S. Treasury monthly issuance are, it's not at an all-time high as it was during COVID, but it's the second all-time high. So we're presently issuing almost a trillion dollars a month of Treasury securities, primarily to refinance ones that are coming due. These amounts are huge. Another way to look at it is now U.S. interest payments on the federal debt exceed defense spending. If we go back to 20 years ago, the annual interest payments were about $400 billion a year. Presently, we're running close to a trillion. And the annual defense spending, which was about $300 billion a year 20, 22 years ago, is now up to about $800 billion. So the U.S. interest payments have now become much more significant to pay out of the federal budget than the defense spending. In order to gain perspective, in my view, I think it's important to think of economic trends in terms of waves sort of like wave sets that oftentimes after a hurricane, there are often wave sets of three. A major wave will come in, but it will have a a secondary wave and and a third wave right behind it. And then another series of three waves tend to come in. And that's been noticed throughout the weather analyses of hurricanes, particularly in the Pacific. Waves are also important to think about in terms of the economy. And in this case, I'm going to talk about inflationary waves. The first wave of inflation that we really experienced of serious consequences was in the late 1960s. That wave was addressed and inflation trended down until the early 70s. And then, as you may recall from prior podcasts, we had a really serious inflationary wave that occurred later on in the 70s. Interest rates were increased substantially as that was a consumer-driven inflationary period. But the second inflationary wave in this case peaked at a higher rate than the first one. And then in the 1979-80 period, we had another inflationary wave that was higher than the prior two. And uh, that was the period when Federal Reserve Chair Volcker actually had short-term interest rates pegged at close to 20% for a period of time. And I think where we are now is we are just after the first wave. We're sort of like the position we were in in the 1960s. We've come down in inflation temporarily. But the next wave, which is likely to be noticed this year, is going to be a wave of inflation that's going back up and will go higher than the wave that we just witnessed. We'll see. That's my thinking and that's my expectation. Overall, inflation has not really declined in some areas that are really important. For example, agricultural commodities. The agricultural commodities have been trending up for several years, not at an all-time high yet, but trending up pretty significantly. And at the same time, food prices have been trending down. So this is an issue that's going to reconcile 
And based upon the trade lack of agreement with Russia from the Ukraine and the breadbasket of Europe, based upon poor harvests in Latin America, that it's likely that we will be seeing this really soon in the wholesale prices of the commodities and agricultural commodities continuing to head up. We have similar expectations in the oil prices. Oil pullbacks traditionally have been pretty substantial. Following declines in many cases of 70 to 75 percent, oil prices have snapped back substantially. And we have just seen in the past several years a decline in oil prices, arguably around 40 percent. China is now requiring almost 2 million barrels of oil more per day than they did during the height of COVID. So China is coming back. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia has been cutting back oil production by one to two million barrels a day. So the oil markets are tightening up. We've seen this in the past few weeks. A couple of weeks does not a trend make, but the underlying trends of increasing oil demand by the Eastern Bloc, primarily from OPEC, is going to have a noticeable spillover in oil price increases as we move through this year in the Western Bloc. The oil traders, people who make their living trading oil, in the past several weeks have put out buy alerts on West Texas oil that it has broken out of the downtrend. We'll see if they're right, but a lot of things seem to be following into places. And all of this in the context of stock market vulnerability, which we've talked about for some time now. As the stock market continues to have a very strong bear market rally, we note that the tech mega cap stocks that have been the primary ones responsible for the rally, the top eight, nine, ten stocks, the FANG stocks plus Microsoft, are now making earnings estimates. Earnings estimates are now coming out anyway for these companies that are reflecting lower earnings expectations and reflecting lower net cash generation expectations. I suspect this is going to ultimately have an impact in the stock market, although forecasting the stock market has a whole series of pitfalls, as we all know. But a lot of the trends are going in the direction with the higher interest rates, higher oil prices, the mitigated growth in the top technology companies, and the need to refinance a lot of debt into the trillions of dollars, which will pull money from the stock market, in my view. We are entering a period where it's going to be historically very unfriendly. And the final point I will bring to this uh, subject is, again, volatility. Traditionally, volatility in the stock market is relatively low from January through July. And this is over a period of years from 1990 to 2022. And the volatility picks up usually in August through the rest of the year, or at least into November, where we have very high volatility. So this again would appear to be a warning for the next several months in the particularly the stock market. Last podcast, I mentioned to you, I was going to bring up opportunities for investment. And I think it's time to start thinking about these opportunities, given the environment that was just discussed. And I mentioned to you in the last couple of podcasts that raw material suppliers would be an area that I'm going to focus on in the next few podcasts a little bit. 
but I'm going to start with looking at a chart, which I have. I'm sorry I can't share it over the airwaves, but the commodities to equity price ratios have been a long-term series of high highs and low lows. And we have moved from a period of time where commodities, at least going back 15 years or so ago, were at a relatively high price versus equities. And this would go back to about the global financial crisis years. If we went back one more cycle, we would have had the Gulf War and the SNL crisis back around 1990. And back, if we go one more cycle in the early 70s, we would have had the oil embargo years and the inflationary bust. So during those years, commodities relative to equities were relatively high priced. But we've come a long way down since then. And in fact, in the past 50 plus years, we are at the lowest point we've seen in terms of commodity prices versus equity prices, stock market prices. And for me, that's a time to begin thinking about buying. Buy low, sell high, right? And underloved, a ignored, a pretty well discarded part of the markets for years has been the raw materials or the commodities producers. I'm primarily talking about raw materials, about agricultural products and mining products, and more to follow in, in a minute or two on that. Moving to the Standard & Poor's 500 Metals and Mining Index, we had a, a bottom in that index of, of mining stock prices back in 2008. And we now have gone to a bottom that's even lower than that one very recently. So again, looking at the metals and mining stocks is what I'm starting to do, preparing for the next upturn. It may be a year or two away, but it's time to start making strategies for the upturn, in my view. Even though the U.S. industrial production has been on a plateau, has been stagnant for years, and the fact that we did outsource a lot of our manufacturing to the Eastern Bloc, China, importantly, Southeast Asia, our U.S. manufacturing relative to gross national product back 60 years ago was about 28%, and we're all the way down to about 10%. And this is the area that I expect to be turning around and creating new uptrends during the next growth period for the United States, which again may be a year or two off from really starting. But it's pretty clear to me that the Western block of countries is allocating the investment money to become more sufficient, not only in oil, not only in agricultural goods, but also in manufacturing. And I think we're going to see a lot more of this. We are seeing very large infrastructure bills through Congress that have an impact on the raw materials, on iron ore, copper, zinc, and so forth. Historically, compounding the issue is that the companies who are in the mining and metals industries have actually been underinvesting in capacity. The investments have actually been in the Eastern Bloc, not in their home countries. And so at the present time, the capital expenditure cycle adjusted for the gross domestic product is as low as it's been in many decades. And that is looking to be turning around. Let me go a little bit more in depth about some of the commodity considerations that I have. And for example, in the move to aggressively secure our energy needs, whether they be met by oil, solar, nuclear, or wind, or even coal that can be cleaned up coal for the sake of the environment, we need to consider our needs based upon the amount we produce in the Western Bloc of countries. And that's pretty sobering. 
I'll talk more about this in the next couple of podcasts. For now, I just want to briefly introduce the EV, or the Electronic Vehicle Battery Metals. A lot of people don't really think about this, but the battery cells in an EV contain roughly 150 pounds of lithium, 70 pounds of nickel, 40 pounds of manganese, 20 pounds of cobalt, and overall about 50 pounds of copper. But the real issue that seems to be front and center is the graphite. Graphite is key to the EV, the batteries. It's the largest single component in terms of weight. Typically, it could be 200, 250 pounds of a 1,000-pound battery. And we have no graphite production in the United States. And most of the graphite production comes from the Eastern Bloc. And I'll give you an example of that. China has by far the largest mine production of graphite. It has as much as the rest of the world combined. It produces about 850,000 metric tons a year. Number two is Madagascar, drops down to 170,000 metric tons. Mozambique is number three with 110,000 metric tons. Brazil, number four, 87,000. South Korea, 17,000, all the way to 17,000. And even Russia and Canada, their mine production of graphite is only 15,000 metric tons each. So you can see the Eastern Bloc, no pun intended, actually has a lock on graphite. That is a clear and present issue today for future battery production. Overall, looking ahead for five years across all the battery metals, the mine supply of raw materials is almost too large to even imagine. To manufacture each EV battery, I just told you estimates of the amount of the refined material that goes into the battery, but the raw material that has to be mined, for example, for a single battery, 25,000 pounds of brine has to be mined for the lithium. 30,000 pounds of cobalt ore needs to be mined. 5,000 pounds of ore needs to be mined for the nickel, again, for one battery. 25,000 pounds of ore needs to be mined for copper. And if you combine all this to produce one EV battery, requires digging up about 500,000 pounds of the Earth's crust. Again, that's just for one battery. And we are planning to have millions of EV vehicles, tens of millions, over the next four or five years. Cobalt is an issue that has been an issue for a long time because the Democratic Republic of the Congo produces 73% of the world's cobalt production. After that, it drops all the way down to 4.5% for Indonesia, 3.5% for Australia, 2.7% for the Philippines, 2.7% for Cuba, 1.8% for Russia, and so forth. You get back into some of the more in the Eastern Bloc countries. But the point is that as the world becomes divided into the Eastern Bloc and Western Bloc, and the Western Bloc is needing to secure more independence for its energy, its agricultural goods, and its raw materials, the Western Bloc, we have a long way to go to become self-sufficient. And we have a long way to go to recover our manufacturing, and our manufacturing is going to require more raw materials and so forth. We simply transferred the manufacturing to the Eastern Bloc over decades, and the oil supplies were transferred to OPEC. And the raw material supplies were not only transferred to the Eastern Bloc, but to their controlled countries in Africa. So long-term, strategically, planning for retirement and investing, I'm going to talk more about ways to do that. We have time. All this is 
going to take time to roll out. But one of the areas that I'm going to recommend is to become familiar with some of the exchange traded funds. These are funds that behave somewhat like mutual funds, except they have far less fees. They're fixed portfolios of companies. You can specialize in Eastern Bloc versus Western Bloc, actually. You can buy Australian exchange traded funds, Canadian. You could buy funds that specialize in certain commodities. So on the SoundCloud account, I'm going to leave a link that I recommend that you access that will begin the introduction to some of these exchange traded funds that over the next month or two, I think we're going to begin focusing on how we can take advantage of what looks like it's a pretty negative economic, financial, and political picture over the next year or so. And we want to not only survive in this negative picture, but we want to thrive. And that's going to be the subject of where we're going. In the meantime, stay conservative, stay well, and stay out of debt as much as possible. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornadin. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960. These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.